Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Gift. In this three-part Christmas series, we will be highlighting the significance of the gifts the Magi brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we'll explore the symbolism of these gifts for Jesus and for us. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. What a meaningful Advent tribute this morning. As we talk about joy, I just want to remind you of something that Scripture tells us about joy, about the joy that Jesus had with regards to his coming to earth and his ultimate goal. In the book of Hebrews, in uh, chapter 12, it tells us these things. It says that in uh, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Today we're going to be talking about the joy that comes through Jesus and what he gives us as a gift. And we're talking about gifts all through this season. And this morning, I'm going to share with you about a beautiful gift, actually a couple of beautiful gifts, born out of tragedy and suffering. And as we do that, We recognize that we've been going through an incredible year, a year where there has been great tragedy, a year where there's been great suffering, a a year where people have gone through darkness. And so when we understand that Jesus has done that also on our behalf and that he has given us hope for eternal life and for his power for living while we're on this earth, that fills us with joy despite what we're going through. The first gift I want to share with you is a gift that comes from a story. I don't know if you've ever been to the New England Holocaust Museum in Boston. It's right across from Boston City Hall. It's just off that famous Freedom Trail. If you haven't gone, uh, I want to tell you about it. It's a strikingly haunting memorial. It's it's haunting because it's uh, six glass towers that reach 54 feet high, and they're lit internally from top to bottom. And the six towers represent the six camps where six million Jewish people lost their lives. The glass of the towers is etched with millions of numbers representing the infamous tattoos inflicted on the victims' arms of the Holocaust. But also etched on the walls of each tower is a memory, a memory of a survivor of a death camp. Inscribed on the sixth tower is a short story. It's titled One Raspberry, and it was written by Gerda Weissman Klein. When uh, German troops invaded Poland, 15-year-old Gerda and her family survived in a Jewish ghetto until June of 1942. That's when Gerda was torn, kicking and screaming from her mother as she was sent to a death camp. And Gerda would spend three more years in a Nazi concentration camp. Part of that would include a 350-mile death march, which she somehow survived. And when American soldiers liberated her and others... She was a 68-pound skeleton of a human being. Now, at the New England Holocaust Museum, five towers tell the story of unconscionable cruelty and unimaginable suffering, but the sixth tower stands as a testimony to hope. And that's the tower that has Goethe's two-sentence story. This is what she wrote. Elsa 
A childhood friend of mine once found a raspberry in the camp, and she carried it in her pocket all day to present it to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry, and you gave it to your friend. About Gerda's story, Pastor Mark Battison writes, the true measure of a gift is what you gave up to give it. One raspberry isn't much unless it's all you have. Then it's not next to nothing. It's everything. It's powerful when we're on the receiving end, but it's even more powerful and beautiful when we're on the giving end. Elsa's gift to Gerda was beautiful. This series of messages we're calling The Gift, and each week we're looking at one of the gifts that the Magi presented to Jesus after his birth. We read about it in the Gospel of Matthew, so just let me remind you. When they, the Magi, saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each of those beautiful gifts are rather unique and somewhat odd to give a child, but in those beautiful gifts, we actually learn something about the most beautiful gift that was ever given to us, and that is Jesus. Last week, we looked at the gift of frankincense. Frankincense was used by the priests of Israel as an incense to be burned with the sacrificial offerings to God at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Every year, the high priest of Israel would sacrifice a perfect animal on the Day of Atonement as a payment to God for the sins of the people of Israel. And in the book of Hebrews, we read about Jesus, who has become our perfect and our final high priest, who offered himself as the final and the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Now today... We're going to look at the gift of myrrh. If you don't know much about myrrh, myrrh is a fragrant, a fragrant spice derived from the sap of a tree native to Arabia. And while it can be used as an incense in the ancient world, it had a wider usage as a perfume, as an anointing oil, or it could be made into a medicinal tonic to numb pain. When Jesus was crucified, the soldiers offered him such a tonic. It was wine mixed with myrrh. But maybe the most notable use of myrrh was that it was the key ingredient in a mixture of spices that would be used to prepare bodies for burial. We read in the Bible that after Jesus' death and in accordance with Jewish burial customs, some of his followers asked for his body and they took it and they wrapped it in linen with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So, as a gift, myrrh symbolizes the suffering of Jesus, the bitterness and the affliction that he experienced. The baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man, and he would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on a cross for all who would believe in him. And this gift of myrrh, it reminds us that Jesus is our suffering servant the same suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about in chapter 53 of his book of prophecy. 
Now that prophecy about the suffering servant is found in chapter 53. It starts a little bit at the end of 52. I encourage you this week to read those verses. And when you do so, you'll understand how Jesus is the only one who could fulfill that prophecy. And to underscore the truth that he's the only one who could fulfill that prophecy. Jesus himself understood that. And he refers to that prophecy saying that he himself has fulfilled it. And the New Testament leaders, the disciples and the apostles, in numerous times in their writings in the New Testament, quote that prophecy as being fulfilled by Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at some of the verses from Isaiah 53 and see how Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the suffering servant. The first thing that we want you to know is this. Jesus suffered unjustly. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 53. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. The injustice that rained down on Jesus was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. And in the Gospels, we read that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. In Matthew chapter 26, we read that the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Now Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of that region of the Roman Empire. And when the high priest brought Jesus to Pilate, he listened to the accusations they made about Jesus, the false accusations. And then in a private moment, Pilate cross-examined Jesus. And after doing that, Pilate gave this verdict. He said, I don't find this man guilty of anything. But when Pilate attempted to release Jesus, the chief priest and the officials called for Jesus to be crucified. The suffering servant prophecy also says that the suffering servant would be buried like a criminal. He would be put in a rich man's grave. Now, regarding that rich man's grave, we know that actually happened. In the book of Matthew, we read that after Jesus died on the cross, it says this, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He had become, he himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb, which had been cut out of rock. Only a rich person in that day and age could have a tomb that had been cut out of rock. So you're beginning to see how Jesus fulfills this prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In another part of that prophecy, it says this, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. We read this about Jesus in that last week, the week we call the Passion of Christ. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. And we know that he poured out that sorrowful prayer to God there where he asked God to take this cup of suffering from him but said, nevertheless, your will be done. And when Jesus was crucified, we read how people turned away from him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they mocked him. This prophecy about the suffering servant also says this, that he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, that he was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. In the Gospels, we read that Pilate gave the high priest what they wanted and they turned him over. He turned him over to be crucified. And before doing that, they had him flogged. They had him whipped. And then they sent him off to be crucified where the soldiers beat him and mocked him. And we know that death by crucifixion pierced his hands and his feet. Now, though this prophecy was written almost 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we see the unjust suffering of the servant of Isaiah 53 fulfilled in our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the next thing that I want us to see about this prophecy. Jesus suffered willingly. Isaiah writes this, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. When you read about the accounts of the arrests and the multiple trials that Jesus endured between King Herod and the high priest and Pontius Pilate, what is striking is the way that Jesus responded to the outright lies, the manipulated circumstances, the trumped-up verdicts, and the continual physical abuse. His response, we see, begins when he's betrayed by his own disciple, Jesus, Judas. Judas has given a sign to the soldiers that are coming to arrest Jesus, and he says, he will be the one that I kiss. Isn't it ironic that uh, a, something that would be a gesture of respect and of affection would be used to betray Jesus? At that arrest, Jesus neither fled nor resisted the soldiers, but he went willingly. When false accusations were made against him, he didn't answer. He remained silent. When Jesus was asked if he was the Christ, the, the Greek word for Messiah, Jesus didn't shrink back but boldly admitted it, knowing full well that he would be accused of blasphemy and sentenced to death by the high priest. And he was. When Pilate saw Jesus was innocent and he declared his innocence to the high priest, and when Pilate tried to free him, those same high priests pressured Pilate by questioning his own allegiance to the Roman emperor. And so out of his own fear, Pilate gave in and turned Jesus over to be executed. And again, Jesus never resisted. The willingness of Jesus to suffer for us and to fulfill that prophecy is astonishing. When you read through the four Gospels, you see how Jesus was brutalized physically and emotionally. And when you realize Jesus endured all of that without resisting, without arguing, or defending himself, you have to be filled with awe. He suffered willingly. He also suffered purposefully. Look at what Isaiah's prophecy says. 
but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And, the, and because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus' suffering was God's plan to save the world from sin. This reveals that there was a purpose to his suffering. The apostles understood that there was a purpose to Jesus' suffering, and they understood that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that he would die for the sins of all of humanity. The apostle Peter wrote these words. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So we see in Jesus and what he did, the understanding that he was dying for the sins of the world, and we understand his satisfaction that he knows that there are many spiritual sons and daughters who enter the kingdom of heaven because of his sacrifice. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. All of Jesus' actions reveal that there was a purpose. There was a plan to what was happening here. Now, as we're talking about the gift of myrrh, that reminds us that Jesus is our suffering servant. Remember earlier that I pointed out that that myrrh could be used to numb pain. And in the Gospel of Mark, we read that at the crucifixion, the, the soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Scholars write this. Jesus tasted it and he realized what it was. And in a supernatural display of courage, our suffering servant rejected anything that would numb his suffering. He took the extreme punishment that had to be exacted for sin. His position was he would be a substitute for us. And he purposely wanted to take the full force, the entire weights of the sin of the world, sober-minded and without any relief. And he did that for us, purposefully. Jesus suffered. That was the plan, demonstrating even more clearly to us how Jesus fulfills the prophecy that the gift of myrrh hints at, that he is our suffering servant. So how should we respond to all of this? When we look at Isaiah 53 and we look at the fulfillment of that in Scripture, how should we as followers of Jesus respond to the one who suffered and died for us so that we may have power for living in this world and the promise of eternal life. Well, he knew that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And long before it happened, Jesus actually prophesied about his own death. And this is what he said. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed 
and on the third day be raised to life. You see, knowing everything, he knew and he knew what would happen and he was willing to endure it for us and for the world. That demands a response for us. After Jesus prophesied about his own death, he turned, to his, he turned to his followers, and this is what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He's saying this. If you believe that I did all of this for your sake, then set aside your will and accept the will of God and follow me. Jesus does this to give us the beautiful gift of power for living while we're on this earth and the gift and promise of eternal life when we die. He suffered so we could be saved. Jesus gave it all so that we could have eternity with him. And so our response should be twofold. The first response should be this. It's one that the Apostle Paul talks about. Our response should be one of gratitude. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, thank God for his gift that is too wonderful for words. So I want to encourage you to spend some time this week thanking God for the gift of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. But our response also needs to be one of following. So thank God for Jesus, but now follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Follow his teachings and the example that he has given to us. I want to move into a time of prayer. And as we move into this time of prayer, honestly, one of the things that this message really asks of all of us is this. What is our response? If you have never told Jesus that you believe in him, that should be your response today. And you should tell him you believe in him and want to follow him. And so I'm going to start this prayer time with an opportunity for you to pray a prayer where you can profess your faith in Jesus and your desire to follow him. And then I'm going to pray for all of us that we will be cognizant of the need to show our gratitude and our thankfulness to God for what he has done for us in Jesus, our suffering servant. So if you would, wherever you are, bow your heads and join me in prayer. Father, as we come into this time, I recognize that some people may have never told you that they believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and want to follow him. So if that's you, I invite you wherever you are to pray these words back to God in your own words, silently, at your seat. Here's the first part. Dear God, I do believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And now today, I declare that I want to follow him forever. Now, as we continue in a time of prayer, Lord, we want to thank you for your suffering on our behalf, for all that you have done for us, that you were willing to be beaten and whipped and harassed and abused and falsely accused and so much more. We are grateful for the gift that you have given to us, one that is too wonderful for words. We thank you for all that you have done. And our desire is to respond to you not only in gratitude, but by following you and your teaching and your example. So Lord, we believe in you. We love you. We thank you for this beautiful gift that you have given to us 
and what it cost you, we are humbled by that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.